Hello, I am Jeremy Kingsbury. This is Way Too Twog's Bagpipe and History Podcast, the show where you come along with me as I explore the likely repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers. Let's listen to some tunes. So this week's episode is another one that I have long been planning and finally getting around to, uh, which is a discussion with a good friend of mine, Isaac Walters. Uh, Isaac Walters posts on social media as Isaac Walters Factotum, so you might have seen stuff on Instagram or Facebook, uh, but he's quite into kind of historic Highland dress and Highland garb and lately has been... Uh, dabbling in kilt making, well not dabbling, he's made 35 kilts, uh, I think we, we talk about in the discussion. And so we talk a little bit about historic Highland apparel and kind of the history of tartan and kilts and um, the prescriptions after the Jacobite Rebellion and that sort of thing. All kinds of stuff really is what we talk about. Um, in a lot of ways this is a return to kind of the original incarnation of the podcast where I might tend to drink a little bit too much and then ramble and occasionally make a point that's worth listening to and play some music. Um, Isaac stays pretty coherent, but there's a bit of a drinking game in this episode where uh, every time you hear a cork open, you could finish a dram of whiskey, because that is the rate at which I was drinking Highland Park 12-year. So yeah, I had a good time. Uh, Ike and I have known each other since, uh, arguably we were both kids, certainly since I was a kid, and he was, well, he was a kid. He was, he was a pretty young 19-year-old. But uh, but yeah, we have known each other a long time, worked together for a couple summers, and have have done several living history gigs together. So, uh, and that's probably the more interesting conversation for folks that aren't uh, actively reenactors. I think if you're a reenacting bagpiper, uh, this will be a really interesting conversation for you. But even if not, if you have questions about the value of living history, um, and and that sort of thing, this is this is probably be a fun fun episode. Because uh, honestly, Ike kind of talked me around to it. It's funny, Ike and I are both kind of at different levels of disenchanted and frustrated with, you know, reenacting or living history. But uh, Isaac does a better, a much better sales pitch for the value of it than than I ever could in this this long conversation. So, apologies for the number of times that I kind of meander and don't quite get to the point that I think I'm going to. Um, yeah, I've definitely grown a little too accustomed to being able to listen back and edit myself and just re-record. So uh, anyway, we are going to have some tunes on this episode. So we're going to start with a bit of a correction from last week. Last week I said I was playing New Way to Morpeth, uh, but I was actually playing the tune New Way to Bowden from William Dixon's book. Uh, so in order to correct that, I'll play New Way to Morpeth on Highland Pipes. Uh, then on Illin Pipes, I'm going to play a tune called Johnny McGill from James Aird's, uh, one of James Aird's books. Cool thing about Johnny McGill, um, many cool things, but uh, it's also, the name of the tune is uh, Come Under My Platy, and it's a kind of a popular 18th century and early 19th century Scottish folk song uh, called Come Under My Platy, but we'll play it as Johnny McGill. And then I'm going to have the conversation with Isaac and I, which will go for about an hour. And then at the end of that, I will kind of finish the episode with uh, a set that I have probably already played on the podcast um, early in the last season. Uh, I kind of consider it my kilt set, so it's um, 
a bunch of tunes that sort of have something to do with kilts. So it is the Buckskin Kilt, followed by the Wren's Death, which has nothing to do with kilts, but it's my good connecting tune. Uh, and then the Kilt is My Delight and Jenny Dang the Weaver. And those are all from Donald McDonald's collection. Uh, anyway, so first I got some cool mail today. So let us go to the mail coach. This is my bit where I play a bit of the tune, The Mail Coach, uh, and then talk about emails I got. Well, in The Mail Coach this week, I wanted to thank John Daly and Jeff Jones for drawing my attention to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast episode uh, featuring Shane Lestadel. Uh, Shane talks about kind of her experience with, uh, amongst other things, Scottish uh, Baroque fiddling and uh, Irish fiddling and sessions and that sort of thing. Uh, Shane's also kind of pursuing a PhD in Scottish Baroque fiddling in Australia, so uh, definitely a pretty stellar episode with lots of good information and good tunes. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes. I uh, also wanted to thank Matt Seattle for correcting my a uh, new way to Morpeth error. So uh, with that, let us transition to William Dixon's uh, new way to Morpeth. with the uh, episode today was to play a bunch of tunes that had to do with kilts and plaids and that sort of thing uh and 
<laughs> I kind of I found this this tune come under my plotty, uh, that it's really almost worth a whole episode just to discuss the like gender stuff going on in it. Um, it's a love sick song, I guess. You know, it's uh, basically the the melody is some old man offers uh, a young lass like to come under his plaid to, to get out of the, the cold and that he's, even though he's 62, he's quite wealthy and would take good care of her and that, you know, he'd be a good husband to her. And she says, well, you know, I love this, I love this young guy, Johnny, who's a really good dancer and pretty. And, uh, he says, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm rich, you know, I'm definitely rich and you can take shelter under my plaid, uh, cause I'll be a good husband. And she says, well, yeah, you know, my parents did say you'd be a good husband and it would be nice to, you know, be bra so I guess I will marry you. And then, you know, Johnny, who she's in love with, overhears all this and is just devastated and goes on to sing about it. And I don't know, man, all this research I've been doing into how gender and sexuality works in the islands in the 18th century. Like, yeah, marry the 62-year-old. In 18th century Scotland, odds are fair, at least, that he will die soon and then you'll be a wealthy widow and can get back together with Johnny if you choose. Or maybe just enjoy some property rights. But, you know, I, I guess I wasn't an 18th century balladeer. Maybe for a reason. Uh, it's an interesting tune. It's an older melody, supposedly written by a man named Johnny Miguel, according to John Glenn. Uh, kind of the first chunk of the 18th century. And by the end of the 18th century, it has already made its way to Ireland. And is quite popular there, under the name Go to the Devil and Shake Yourself. Uh, which I've already played on the podcast. It actually is part of that Cook's Country Dancing collection from 1797, and it's on Oyster Wives Rant. Uh, anyway, so here is James Aird's setting for Johnny McGill. for a while how a couple months ago I had this idea like oh, I should see if Ike wants to be on the podcast and talk about uh, kilts and historic clothing and then I think a week or two after that you said hey do you want me to come on the podcast ever and, and talk about historic clothing and, and kilts and so it seemed like a good vibe and sort of maybe a couple months before that like early in the run of the podcast a listener messaged me like we were just talking back and forth about kind of what clothing should look like for Piper's and he said, I'm really hoping to get a kilt reproduced by this guy, Isaac Walters Factotum. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with him. Um, I've known him since I was like 16. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how, I think I was 12. 
I mean, I'm, I, yeah, I'm much younger than you, though. I'm, I'm just a wee yeah. bairn, so you must have been like 30 or something when we, when we oh, played. Oh, shoot. Like. <laughs> I was in my 20s. Were you I was in my 20s. Uh, okay. Well, yeah, because I started reenacting in 96. I was 18. Okay. And I don't think I met you for maybe two years. So I, I might have been, I was probably 20, 21 when we first met. Yeah, I think the first time we met was the, uh, was that Sockville Rendezvous? And... Or maybe, yeah, I think it was Sockville. Could have been Wa- either Sockville or it could have been Wausau Log Boom or whatever oh, that was, Log Bam or whatever they called that. Yeah. The, but, I, but I think the first time we actually hung out and visited was probably Sockville. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, so we, we wound up just knowing each other at like reenactments and kind of these podunk rendezvous things around Wisconsin and then wound up professionally working together in, for the Park Service, which is where, I, I don't know, that's not where you first got your interest in scottish stuff though right oh absolutely not that's been forever and i mean i kind of started reenacting with a little bit of a scottish swing to things and before moving to the the french just because of the history in the area but um i mean growing up hearing stories i mean i grew up um with a family and my dad's side that was very scottish and we went to press so you went to a presbyterian church i think is where yeah and my family all over curlers and i mean it was very common thing around us and um then of course at the university i I spent a semester in scotland and then came home and i mean that's always been there it's just more recently that i finally kind of decided to go a different route with things because of grand portage i I think with um moving from the earlier french period to british period and then with that starting to say hey let's do some clerking and more the scottish side of things i think it's funny that most of the reenactors in fact, all of the reenactors that start at Grand Portage come in doing a different time period and then eventually just like surrender to doing 1797. Um, and I didn't surrender until after I quit four years of work. Yeah. Yeah, I remember Finally. Carl was all about 1760, the little north. And then I think maybe after 20 years, he finally, like, I guess I should get a top hat. Uh, Gene was French period too, right? He was 1730s. Pretty much still is, other than occasionally coming to Grand Portage and that, yeah. Yeah, and I was... Yeah. Yeah, so so I've talked about it on the podcast before, but just a quick recap. Grand Portage was the Scottish headquarters for... Where it's the headquarters, rather, for this fur trading company called the Northwest Company that was owned um, by Scots, mostly. A mixture of people, but like the big money behind it were were Scots. Um, And one of the ways that... Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that's been interesting, like they had a bagpiper there and there's always been this question of like, what did a bagpiper on Lake Superior in 17, from 1794 to 1801 look like? And the accounts we get of George Mackay, who was the piper there, don't say anything about clothing. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess I've got, I've got my take on it. You've got pretty similar takes on it. So what's, what's your, what is your look for a late 18th century bagpiper that is hired specifically to be a bagpiper i guess well that's that's you know as you know because we don't know it's a tough thing i think we could probably pretty definitive definitively say for scotland but now you start talking in canada and not just canada but like thousand miles (laughs) from where civilization was in canada if you wish to call it quotes yeah yeah. In quotes, yeah. of like, you know, what's what's that? But I mean, if you're going from Montreal and all the way up river to Grand Portage and then beyond, I mean, if you look at Mackay, I mean, he was, you know, ended up being a clerk quite a ways into the interior yeah. too. 
even further past Grant Portage. So, um, I, I mean, I guess I look at it as, you know, what were they wearing in Scotland? And, and by this point, you know, especially after the postscription, I, I think if you're going to be a bagpiper, you're going to be wearing Highland dressed, high Highland attire. You know, um, I think there's now the development pretty heavily of competitions at that point and in competitions at that point, as well as especially today, I mean, there's a clothing element to that. Yeah. Uh, and you're wearing Highland, Highland tire. Um, pipe bands weren't really a thing yet, but as pipe bands get going, of course, there's, you know, uniform to that. You have uh, regimental pipers. They're wearing uniform, obviously, because yeah. they're military. I, I think there's just this expectation. I mean, if you're hired to be a piper, if you're being brought in for that purpose, especially now after the postscription with this push of the Highland um, revival and, and just this infatuation with all things Highland, um, I really think that you're going to start to see, and I know you do in Scotland, I mean, there's images that show this, there's quotes and there's you know information on that. You get to the Northwest Company, we don't know, but I can't help but think that if, you know, Simon McTavish, this huge wealthy owner of the, uh, you know, one of the owners of the Northwest Company was going to purposely hire a bagpiper to come in just for the sake of bagpiping. Yeah. He's going to want him to look Scottish as well. Cause I mean, the reason for bringing him in to start with is, and, and we do see this a little bit with the Northwest company and you know, as much as I, or probably more, there are a number of elements where they really kind of push that Scottishness at times and celebrate that Scottishness. So I, I really think that um, the chances are you're going to see the guy wearing shoes or a kilt and then, you know, most of the clothing on top is going to be pretty similar to what you would be wearing otherwise, maybe a slightly different cut to the jacket, but really probably not. And with the kilt, uh, you're probably going to have, you know, your, your uh, tartan hose and then on the head, probably some type of Scots bonnet, which ultimately isn't all that weird either, because we know that in the fur trade, especially as we get further on, Scots bonnets were just really common anyway. And we see native folks, Métis, oh, yeah. French, you know, all these people wearing Scots bonnets. So that isn't so far-fetched. Um, I know that we've talked about it, but I think also there becomes a difference on, you know, like both of us have now done some, you've done a lot, but I've done a little bit now even of bagpiping in that setting of the historical yeah. setting. And, you know, I, I'll throw on the kilt and everything, you know, a historic proper to the time period kilt and, you know, the, the attire that's, a, you know, appropriate Highland dress for that period. But um, I really do think that as the piper, you know, even if you take Mackay, for example, uh, I think that while he was hired in and doing the role of piping, especially for more pomp and circumstance situations, ceremony or, or, or even just a dance or a party, he might be wearing that, but I think on a daily basis, especially while traveling, and then later on when he becomes a clerk, he's probably just wearing what everyone else is wearing. Yeah, which I would attire. Yeah, as somebody that's worn a kilt in February in Winnipeg, I, I can say that it's not an ideal environment to wear a yeah. kilt in February. And I could say trues would be fine, and a nice yeah. pair of wool trousers, why not? But I don't know that that would have been as common of a, uh, an item for someone to have, especially in the quantity to, you know, as your one pair wear out, you're not going to just replace it easily with another pair. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried I'm going to wind up getting distracted uh, a little too much, but I, I am curious. So I'm, I'm looking at my, my print of the Neil McLean uh, uh, painting, right? The or woodcut or whatever. So Neil McLean's the first guy to win um, the bagpiping competition. I think it's the first bagpiping competition. He's, he's the winner. 
And so he's awarded a set of pipes. And I've, I've always kind of loved this this image, which will probably wind up being the like episode art for this episode. Um, but it's to me, it always looks like the coat doesn't quite fit. Like it still feels like like the way that it's sort of pulled back and goes over the the extra fabric, if that's a great kilt or if it's just a plaid like that you've made where it's made to look like a great kilt. It just bunches in a way that isn't very tight and crisp. And I kind of think of the 1780s like clothing as being pretty tight and crisp. So the fact that it's got these little poofy... Yeah. Well, and I don't know if that's a situation of it's a normal jacket that he's thrown on with the, the kilt or, or, or played, or if he's, um, you know, that's just how it, they were wearing them. Um, I mean, certainly we see some shorter coats earlier on and then yeah. certainly way later on, but I'm always surprised that, you know, a lot of the 1780s and 90s, early 1800s images of guys wearing what I would consider to be a pretty close to full length or at least longer than you would expect with a kilt jacket with a with a kilt yeah uh, i mean arguably if you even look at victorian images of guys wearing kilts in the like the 1860s and stuff 70s um a lot of them wearing sack jackets that are i mean this is way beyond the period that we're talking about but yeah. they're wearing jackets that aren't really anything that you most of the traditional kilting dudes today that are like really hardcore about what is you know proper highland attire they would look at that and, go, that and go, "Why are you wearing such a long jacket? That's not sure. correct with a kilt." So, was, so when did like the Charlie coat, like all that weird Charles Charlie vest and that kind of stuff, show up? Well, um, I mean, certainly we're seeing kilt jackets uh, in, in tweeds and in, in brathias and, and other types of woolens um, pretty early on in the eighteen hundreds, uh, eighteen, let's say. 40s 50s at least where you're starting to see like the argyle cuts and some varying cuts but you see just such a huge variation that doesn't exist um in the stores in that today like if you look at the highland industry today and what's being offered for um highland attire it, it's very minimal in comparison and it's pro probably because of demand but also you know things were more bespoke back then and, and made by random people and now it's much more uniform um as far as you start seeing those doublets for people to wear like the and they call them regulation doublets and then there's like montroses and things yeah. like that you know those come in you know also probably mid-century and after uh 19th century um a lot of those are taking um what do you want to say style notes from the military if you will sure and then they start to kind of get cut differently and the prince carl charlie um that we know of for the formal attire today you know, or a coatee as they called them early on really comes about around 1900 um and it's kind of a, a sleek and more streamlined version of the earlier like regulation doublet but you know the, all those things that's one of the things I love about like the 18th century uh, and early 18th and early 19th century stuff is it's, it's far more like normal clothing, if you will. Yeah. And, um, you know, normal type of jacket, a normal waistcoat, normal shirt, and you throw it on with, um, you know, your, your filibag or your kilt or your, your plaid. Yeah. I love those David Allen paintings of like just a kilt, but with a solid color jacket. Like one guy's mm -hmm. got like a red shirt and a black jacket on it. It's just uh just some like solid colors and not so worried, <laughs> worried about it. Um, yeah. We were talking a little bit about the prescriptions and like there's a couple big myths um, about like what was outlawed after the Jacobite Rebellion. And I think in the United States, it's probably worse than elsewhere where there's like this in Canada, this like myth of 
the Jacobite Rebellion somehow being a Scot versus English thing as opposed to really a civil war or rebellion of, you know, plenty of Scots fighting on, on either side of, you know, of the conflict. You talk about English Jacobites existing and I, I think people like faint. They just can't believe such a thing, right? Like, no, 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 no. This is, this is just, just people in Tartan. But anyway, so like one of the myths is always that bagpipes are outlawed, which isn't the case. Uh, I think John Gibson's book does a great job of like showing that example of the one Jacobite piper that was executed like he's trying to not be executed immediately following Culloden because he's a bagpiper like I should be exempt from this murder because I am a bagpiper first and um, they say well you're a Jacobite first and a bagpiper second essentially so they kill him despite the fact that he's a piper not because he's a piper but that's always the evidence given as "Ah, yep see look bagpipes are outlawed as a weapon of war um, but you kind of posted in here specifying like, so what, like kilts, kilts, tartan, what, what was actually banned in the acts of prescription? Well, you know, in, in acts where there, there are multiple acts and revisions to the acts, which is what's kind of an interesting thing. And some of them come to earlier um, disarming acts that were earlier in the 18th century. So they're all kind of a thing. And I think when you look at them, one of the things we need to keep in mind is what was the purpose of them? I mean, it wasn't necessarily to squash Gallic culture. It wasn't to, you know, say, okay, these clothing or whatever is not good anymore. We can't wear it. It was basically to try to prevent uh, the militarism of of the Highlands and to prevent another uprising or another rebellion. So um, in the proscription, I mean, you see a lot dealing with disarming. You see a lot with trying to stop the cattle raiding and some of the things that promoted military activities and, and practice, but then also because of the connection that was made, especially during the 45 of tartan and Highland clothes to um, the Jacobitism, which, I mean, there were people on both sides wearing it and it was, yeah. I mean, they tried to use it to uniform them, but it wasn't really... I think, I think the, the important distinction, though, is that the Duke of Cumberland wasn't wearing tartan and Charlie was, right? Like, one, one of my favorite ways to think of Bonnie Prince Charlie is as the first, like, over-enthusiastic um, Scottish tourist. Like, I feel like Bonnie Prince Charlie got the most Scottish upbringing of any of the Stuarts. Um, like, kind of being covered in tartan, bagpipes, like, all this crap that the Stuarts didn't seem to care too much about when they were actually, like, in Stirling. Um, but as soon as, you know, they're exiled, like, okay, no, we're gonna, we're gonna really ramp up this. And the romanticism around Charlie, like, the romanticism, I, and then it was, you know, partly PR to try to rile up and get people to fight for him, regardless yeah. of what it meant. I mean, you could argue one way or another, whether he really had a love for it or not. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly he had bagpipes and he had a Gallic ear and he had, I mean, there were elements of perhaps a sincerity to it, but oh, also... Yeah. It was certainly also a, you know, where am I getting my support from and how do I get more? Yeah, I think Um, my my favorite account of this is uh, in Johnson, Johnson and Boswell's tour, there's like an excerpt of um, the people fleeing with Charlie when they landed from Sky and how they offered him claret and wheat bread or something. And he goes on this dramatic, like, no, I, I will never let that that touch my lips while there is whiskey and oat cakes left i will eat the land of my you know my home yeah. and you're like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> i love an oat cake man but come on um but oh. but but no it could be very real anyway um so the prescriptions so the prescription i mean it, it, with what we're looking at and talking about here obviously um it, it's talking about highland clothes 
Um, it doesn't mention Tartan in sense of Tartan being um, banned, which I think is really good. And, and uh, Peter McDonald, Tartan historian of amazing levels, has uh, written some articles on that and really good, done an amazing job debunking it. But what it says is, and I, I'm trying to bring up here a quote, uh, Highland clothes, uh, the plaid, filibag, or little kilt, trues, shoulder plate, shoulder belts, or any part, whatever of that, what particular, what peculiarly belongs to the Highland garb, and that no tartan or party-colored plaid or stuff shall be used for great coats or upper coats. Um, so, I mean, the only time it mentions tartan in there is that it for using for coats and, and upper coats. So, really, what it's saying is basically Highland clothes. Um, and then right away within it, it also gives exemptions immediately to women. Women are allowed to continue to wear Highland dress and then tartan. Um, it, it gives exemptions for soldiers in the regiments because certainly they wanted to keep that going. And then also for landowning and uh, gentlemen and their children or their sons. So, I mean, you have whole groups of people who, and it may be part of that's also, they don't want to torque off the people who had supported them. And then even after doing this, there's there's tons of and then Peter McDonald I think shows a few of them in one of his articles on his website uh, of of um, you know government supporting people from you know the forty five who then turn around and say what what's going on with this we don't like this band and are actually avidly against it sure. so um, it, it's really interesting to see you know that part of it I think was that idea of okay we're trying to again prevent another um uprising yeah. and if there's something that's like gang symbols and gang clothes we want to stop that so that we can't have that going on but if it's really not that to the extent that it is it's not that big of a deal yeah. and i think we see it being you know in certain areas where jacobitism was was stronger being more harshly punished we see it in areas um in right away at the beginning but things lax pretty quick and I mean, there's, it's full of examples of um, people not following the rules and even people not prosecuting. Right. Um, Gibson, you know, going back yeah. to Gibson, I love it because Gibson, in order to make the point that bagpipes were not banned, he has like a huge chunk of the book that just talks about the proscription in general and, and a lot on clothing yeah. and just kind of what was and what wasn't really followed. And, um, you know, I don't want to say that clothing wasn't, you know, th there were areas that that definitely you know stopped wearing highland attire to a degree but other areas that kept on going and in, in your um yeah when we talk about boswell you know and johnson you know they mention how greatly people are following it but yet they turn around in a couple sentences later and they'll talk about oh yeah so and so has a a fillet bag and blah 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 and you know all these people have it and i think i got a quote right here from 1773 from yeah from johnson's tour the fillet bag or lower garment is still very common and the bonnet almost universal but their attire is such as produces in sufficient degree the effect intended by the law of abolishing the symmetry i mean he's just going back and forth but i mean he, he does mention that these things are being worn and i mean we have images being shown i don't think i mean i mean certainly it was a law people were punished at times but I think the extent that we see some people say, well, all of a sudden it ended and people couldn't do it. And if you did, you'd be, you know, thrown in jail or sent off to the colonies or whatever. And then I've heard some reenactors say, well, they came to the colonies where they could wear it and it, they were allowed to wear it. 
Well, you don't see that though. It's no. funny. You see no. far more Highland attire in, high, in the Highlands where it was illegal than with any of the immigrants uh, yeah. in, in North America, which then becomes that issue for us trying to look at a Highland Piper in the Northwest Company. Yeah. But that also is a little different than normal immigrant culture, I think, in the other colonies. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to put my most sarcastic uh, face on. And... Okay, I'm going to pour a little whiskey while eating that. <laughs> right. So I, I don't understand. I, I don't understand, Isaac, if, if it was about putting down the rebellion, why didn't they just outlaw the tartans from the clans that were, you know, Jacobites? <laughs> just outlaw those Jacobite tartans. Oh, you're just trying to be a jerk. <laughs> a little bit. Um, can I say that online? Or yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I think, think so. Uh, yeah. FCC isn't going to come after you for being turd. Um, yeah, well, so we know that tartan, in, in the terms of what we think of today as um, clan-based, didn't exist in the 18th century. Um, at least not in that time period of the of the rebellions. By the end of the 18th century, we're starting to see a codification, uh, a naming, uh, a variety of things of tartan. Um, as we see, again, that Highland revival and the end of the proscription, um, proscription I, I think we have to remember that as we get not too far from the the rebellions, people start to realize that it's probably not going to happen again. Uh, we start to see even former Jacobites doing amazingly patriotic things for the crown. Yeah. I mean, you look at the Highland regiments during the Seven Years' War and how many of those regiments not only were um, soldiers, but even officers who were former Jacobites. Yeah. I mean, Simon Fraser, um, with the uh, 78th Highlanders uh, coming to North America is a great example of that. That's Lovett's, you know, Lord Lovett's son, sure. uh, super Jacobite. And here he raises a whole regiment who that kicked butt in North America. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, that by the 1780s, and you certainly see a fascination and a love of the Highland dress, and you have the beginnings of Caledonian societies and, and Highland societies, even in, in, in London. In London in the 1770s, they had the formation of the... Uh, Highland Society in London, and people start arguing to get the, the clothing back. We see arguments to get the, um, you know, to have more bagpiping and to, to save the culture. And um, I mean, you even have people writing more and more in Gaelic or trying to push and keep that going in ways that, that are interesting. Um, but with that, we also then see that whole flourishing of tartan. I mean, a lot of people today talk about, oh, the tartan didn't really become big until George's visit. And then, you know, also with Queen Victoria, it was actually earlier than that. Yeah. But certainly um, by the end of the 18th, early 19th century, we start to see some of that naming and that. But even then things weren't solidified. If you look at uh, Wilson's key pattern book of 1819, he's starting to name certain tartans, but he also mentions in there, yeah, I give them names because, you know, that way people buy it or oh, really? you know, this and that. I mean, he doesn't say it quite like oh, that, okay. but I, say. I, I mean, he does mention a couple times, like, I, I think there's one where it's like Argyle tartan or Cam one of them, and he's like, well, I don't know any Campbells that actually wear this, though, and instead they were, you know, and, and, and there's some some interesting quotes in there of who wears what and, and how. I mean, certainly we see some kind of geographic similarities. I mean, you get certain weavers making certain patterns over and over, and we see um, that in portraiture of the time period, but also mentioned in, in uh, historic accounts, whether we really want to call them district tartans or not. But I mean, you would see some geographic, you know, similarities within certain tartans and that. And then certain uniform tartans are certainly coming up already by the 1720s and 30s. Yeah. 
that's it, probably the earliest of actually having a uniform named tartan yeah that government set or is it government set or black watch or campbell what do you what do you call that that stuff that the 42nd wears that I, I call it lots of things i you know black watch is what people know it by today um i oftentimes will call it 42nd cloth because that's what it's called in the record books um especially when you look at like wilson's of um bannockburn but of course they're not weaving for the government until 1760. And then, you know, we're seeing a lot of their stuff in the later 18th and 19th century. Um, you'd call it government set. I think that's probably the best way of doing it. Although today the government has a number of sets that they use with the different regiments, but yeah, government set, 42nd cloth, uh, black watch. It then is later on taken by certain clans. So you see like Campbell's bring it up, but also there's a number of other clans that utilize it in either its main form or as a hunting tartan. I'm using my fingers as quotes, which I can't see on a podcast. But um, (laughs) so, I mean, yeah, that that comes up. But I mean, already you see other regiments doing that pretty early on. I mean, Loudon tried to do that for the 45th, you know, for the 45 uprising. He actually put in for a, a tartan, whether it actually was made or not for his regiment. We don't know, but there's actually a sample of that cloth on record. You can see it. Oh, cool. Um, we see others throughout time, and you see uh, Athel Highlanders, that tartan coming out, um, the uh, Gordon tartan coming out um, in the 1790s as a uh, you know means of creating a, another regimental tartan for what would that have been the 93rd or whatever. Um, my military history here is going to be lacking but i mean you start to see definitely uniform regimental in large quantities tartans in the 18th century but the actual to connect it to a clan um and again i'm putting yeah, quotes, yeah. <laughs> um you know it starts to come in a little bit later yeah yeah i feel like i mean a lot of uh credit is given to the sobieski brothers of sort of like triggering that is that unfair or accurate how do you well did they they i i I don't like talking about them any more than I have to because, well, not, not that it's, it's like I hate them or anything or, you know, they're fakes and frauds. I mean, they have a major impact on, on the period and that, um, and, and credit is due there. And I would say, and I think um, people- And the period are, we're talking with Sobieski's is like what, mid 1800s or? Um, yeah, the second quarter of the, uh, you know, the century. But I mean, the big thing with them, um, yeah, I mean, did they pander into that idea and notion? They definitely had an impact on that to increase and create that. Um, and, and you could point to a large number of factors and people and different things happening. Um, did they cause in some cases more harm than good, in other cases, whatever you want to look at it as? Um, but in terms of named tartans for uh, clans, they definitely had a huge impact on that. And uh, but they weren't the sole cause of that either. So, I mean, I think sometimes they're given far more credit than what they, they are due, even in that. Yeah. Well, that was so. I've been so you've been sewing historic kilts for a bit of time. Uh, how so? I, I made I'm trying to think when did you start? I feel like I, I'm not calling you, I'm not saying you're following me, but I think I sewed my first. You, you made your first kilt before I made my first <laughs> yeah. But it's my one of two kilts, whereas you, I think, are on, what would you say, 30 now? I think I, I'm I'm making either 30, I think I'm working on my 35th kilt right now, not counting unsewn um, fill bag and uh, like Fela, uh, you know, the varying other forms of kilts that weren't stitched in okay. like of a kilt today. 
and that also includes you know historic kilts and modern kilts i've made a few so 35 34 i'm on my halfway through 35 right now but they're not all mine <laughs> I'm gonna, i do not have a closet full. i mean i've got a lot of stuff in my closet but not that, not that not many kilts no they're for other people but it started with me wanting a kilt and no one was making historic kilts really um anymore and not many people even know what a proper historic kilt is. I mean, we go to reenactments, we see modern kilts and all sorts of abominations. Yeah. But uh, Well, I remember looking at, um, so when I was trying to figure out what it should look like, I was looking at portraits, which is why I picked like a really bright red and kind of blue. And I picked which a, is awesome. Yeah, I yeah. picked a tartan that was like, looked like the David Allen paintings I was looking at and for upper class folks. And it wound up being, like I was trying to cover all my bases because if you're wearing a kilt, and bagpiping no matter if you're in a historic setting or not everybody will ask you what your clan is so like being a interpreter head i was like okay well what's what's a tartan that looks right and has a clan story i can talk about while also saying clan tartans are garbage but let me sure it's this because of the northwest company so i've got like a fraser red just sort of awkward it was the first kilt i made was this like fraser red tartan and then i wound up wearing it to my brother's wedding and i didn't realize that his his wife danced with like the 78th fraser highlander like dancing group because they live oh, yeah. in toronto so i was like walking around in a fraser kilt and everybody's like oh are you from the band with like oh this is embarrassing no i do not play with the 78th frasers for pete's sake this is uh i'm not claiming uh such a thing um yeah so that's that's what i picked on um and when i and was not uh, interrupt you but i i've done especially with when i started doing this more done the same because i'll i'll pick 42nd cloth because it certainly is way historic yeah it's a fully correct one to be wearing but i also know if someone asks i'm a campbell personally sure and i'm actually a member of the clan campbell society so i mean i know that technically this is my clan partner but <laughs> now this is and this is actually you know arguably about what we're talking about here too i think that's one of the great things about dressing and the, the 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 historic clothes like this is that it does bring up the opportunities to in in interact in more levels and deeper levels of interpretation teaching the history instead of just being up there playing you know bagpipes and playing historic tunes you know if you play historic bagpipes you know that are proper set up and whatever that gives you yet another thing to talk about you start wearing clothing that's historic well everything you wear i mean you're becoming a living i mean that's the whole thing about living history is that you yourself are a living artifact that you and everything that you have on you that you're wearing is a i don't want to say that i, I always say the word prop and that sounds cheap and generic but ultimately it is yeah. in order to either inspire the, them to ask you questions or for you to then have a story and i know that you know, I've been listening to your podcast for way too long. <laughs> way before you know, it was anything other than me back when it rambling. was the, yeah. you know, rambling the beginning, you know, <laughs> since we've known each other that long. But um, more recently, you have many times brought up the idea of like, oh, I love this song. And when I'm working at Grand Portage or doing these, and you know, whatever, I like using this one because it brings up this whole story and you talk about the stories behind it. And I think that's one of the awesome things about bagpiping and music is that it is a bardic thing where you tell stories. But then in a situation of historic interpretation, now we're talking stories to tell the history, to tell culture, you name it. And we're doing that not just with our music here, but we can also do it with our clothing and whatever else we have around us. Um, by the way, I just picked up um, uh, uh, both volumes of Ashen, uh, a 1784 and a 1785 original. 
<laughs> yeah. And, and why? Why? Well, first of all, I actually have not ever read it. And yeah. although it's fake, you know, McPherson was a fraud, I still want to have it. I don't know, man. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's about the whole story. But we'll talk about it a, a different day over more whiskey. But yeah. either way, for me to have that and then put it in my pipe case, my historic yeah. pipe case, with all my other accoutrements, I, yeah. I, you know, someone coming by, that becomes then an amazing set of stories and, and interactions to talk about history and culture and, and, and social interaction and you name it. Um, yeah, you I know, love your picture stuff. I think we've done one gig as like the Mackay brothers or whatever uh, in a historical setting. And I was immediately jealous of your pipe case of like having a pipe case. Oh, well, now you have one better than mine. So don't talk. <laughs> it is beautiful. It is just such a lovely chunk of cherry wood. But I honestly, like the amount of out of shape I have gotten during the pandemic, I don't think I could carry it to <laughs> a spot where I was going to play. Like, um, it's it's massive. It looks like yeah. a gun crate. It kind of looks like a gun crate. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, yeah, having, having that object there. So your background professionally, like we both worked in public history, um, you, you smartly maybe got out of the park service gig faster than I did. Um, I got, I got trapped for 14 years. Um, but you, your background is in like education and now you are like teaching educators. So you come at this from an education background. I'm just in, you had some stuff in this, uh, Google doc we were working on about like why living history and costume interpretation works and how it's, how it's good. Well, that kind of goes into that whole props thing that we were just talking about. Yeah. So you had asked or we had come up with, or actually I think I even threw this in there and, 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 and what we were discussing, um, you know, why do we even talk about this? I know that you had, um, had someone talk to you at one point and say, what's with like Highland Pipers in general? And why do they always have to be wearing clothes? Whereas, you know, Irish Pipers maybe don't. And they play naked certain, all the time. Irish Pipers. They play naked. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't come to my house. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, but seriously, um, I mean, and that, that goes into a totally different story, but I think for us as historical interpreters, the clothing we wear is important. And I mean, certainly, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast, you know, maybe our historians or historical interpreters, living history people, reenactors, whatever level of that within that spectrum you are. But they also, I'm sure that there are a lot of, you know, bagpipers, bagpipe enthusiasts, you know, people who love the history of the music. Um, I guess part of it comes up is what are you trying to do? You know, are you just playing a historical repertoire for the sake of, you know, enjoying the history, the, the history of the instrument and whatever. But if you're there to teach history in, in, in a bigger, bigger scope, especially as a historical interpreter or as a reenactor, I think the clothing then becomes an important part. And, um, you know, I, I've over the course of degrees and education and working in this both in education, but also in, in the historical interpretation world and in the national park system and everything else. I've read a lot of articles and articles talking about clothing and talking about, you know, interpretation and first person, second person, third person interpretation. And most of us do third person interpretation. And in which case there really isn't a need for the clothing because we're talking about things back then. We're not actually that person or acting, but I think it's, you know, there's a level of wearing those clothes that then, like I said earlier, you know, you have those props or those, um, key points to 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 jump off of or to have and create inquisitive 
you know, yeah. people coming in and asking. And I think of like when I was at Grand Portage, you know, I wasn't there as many years as you, but we saw this joke like how many people in how many places around the world have pictures of us in their photo albums. And that, you know? People constantly stopping. Can I take your picture? Can I take your picture? And it's because you're clothed. It's drawing their attention. It's bringing them in yeah. and also bringing up questions. Right. And I think that that has a hugely valid and important part um, of that. I think that, um, you know, you, the clothing you wear, I mean, we talk about it even in, in, a, in a modern sense with like first first uh, amendment and, and, you know, freedom of speech and, and what you wear is, is a symbolic speech of who you are. Well, even in historical interpretation, you know, there, there's a nonverbal form of communication that's going on with what you're wearing, what you have, what you have around you. And I think of from an educational point of view, again, going back to the fact that I've spent way too many years teaching kids and now teaching teachers is that we, we, we know best practice is um, to teach multi-sensory, you know, use multi-sensory, multi-levels, having, uh, you know, they call it multiple modalities. Um, and basically, you know, if you're in the classroom, you want to, you know, be able to hear, um, see, smell, whatever, what you're teaching. You want to be able to write it, read it, hear it, you know, all of these things. And if you're portraying this history of, uh, I'm teaching about the fur trade, as well as I'm also teaching about some Scottish history and bagpipes. How do I teach this? Well, I can teach it with the music, with the clothing I'm wearing, with the words that I'm speaking, with, you know, all these other things around me. And, you know, you have people who aren't going to connect with one thing or aren't going to connect with another thing. But if you have so many modalities or so many different types of senses that are, uh, you know, and, and ways of approaching things, you're probably going to impact more people more effectively and, and have a greater depth of learning happening from those people that are there. So for me, dressing in the clothes is just another level of trying to push that teaching and increase the learning of those that are, what do you want to call them, the public, the tourist, the yeah. learner, the whatever, you know, depending upon your situation. So for me, that's that's the whole point of clothing. And then of course, then you get into the whole level of, you know, the quality and the historical accuracy of the clothing and what impact does that have on the actual learning. And um, I mean, there's been studies that have been done to show that people may not always know what's historically correct, but they can kind of point out if something doesn't seem right and if it's costumey, and that can actually discredit you in terms of what you're then saying and doing. Sure. I mean, I, I know I, 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 I'm not the average Joe Q public, but when I go somewhere, if I see someone who's wearing something totally horrible and then they start saying some horrible stuff, I turn right off. You know, I, I could be at a historic site that I think is going to be cool as heck to see that, you know, docent or, or tour guide could lose me really quick. Yeah, I, I think there I think that's fair. I think that's accurate. I mean, that's the vibe I get. But as somebody that does have that reenactor, like there's a certain like just bug or like infection that you have as a reenactor where material culture and kind of fixing it, fixating on it becomes really important. Um, but I, I think one of our friends in the past, I have heard secondhand that he said it's more important to get the material culture right or it's really important to get the material culture right because way more people will see you than you will talk to. So even if you don't know anything about the history, if you're walking around like a living model, that is teaching something. Um, but I think there's limits to that too, where like, cause especially yeah. if you go to historic sites where they've got a really good control of the clothing, then like if like the, 
like at a living history site, it's not reenactors generally. It's like that's their job, and people that are reenacting for a living are doing living history work. Um, I just think about the reenactors I know that have incredible material culture, but have no idea uh, about like anything in history except for the material culture. Like, there's a limit there too, right? Of well, well, you can't get in tunnel vision. You have to, yeah. you know. I mean, with anything, there's good and bad, and there's great and there's horrible. And I think you need to have it, you know, and you think of a, a museum, you go to a museum, it's all material items, right? Yeah. How do you interpret those items to tell a bigger story is the important thing. And if you have an interpreter who is good at that, who has that skill and the knowledge to be able to take those material items, take themselves as a, you know, artifact, a museum artifact of sorts as a living historian and, and teach that in a big, broad scope, then that's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, we don't have everyone doing that. And, and I, you know, we, we can hope. Yeah. I, I kind of doubt, I don't know that uh, if, I'm not sure if he listens to the podcast at all, but, um, and if he does, I doubt that he'd listen this far into this episode. But the, the guy that was upset about, uh, or like curious about and sort of grumpy about like wearing a kilt to play bagpipes and seeing it as some sort of, he was, he was upset because there was a, a picture of an Illin Piper that was in historic dress and it was sort of like bad historic dress, but decent historic dress for when the photo was taken. Um, he described it as clowning and he had this idea, which I could, I could definitely understand it from a certain point, but I'm wondering if you can respond to it, that um, reenacting a thing is the same as saying it is dead. And like, granted, he's in Ireland talking about how reenacting occurs to him in Ireland and we are in the United States and it's a different kettle of fish. But um, yeah, just do you have any take on how reenacting well, isn't necessarily a dead man's game? Well, I, I, I don't think it's a dead man's game at all. I, I really think it's it's explaining history, which in many cases is still living. I mean, it's still around. It's still, I mean, when I, when I taught it, you know, was, was doing the history stuff at Grand Portage, one of my favorite places to work was in the kitchen. I mean, I like to cook and I like to eat. So that's one of the reasons. Yeah. But then part of it was, I, I think that you could teach the history so much better because everyone eats. Every, almost everyone has a kitchen. Right. I mean, so there are so many more connections that you can make there. And it's not that things are dead, it's things that maybe evolve, things maybe change, and being able to point those out is important. And I, I think, I don't know, I think when you start talking reenact, you're showing, I mean, you could be reenacting something that happened two months ago. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be dead. I, I think that's kind of a misconception. And I do think that the, sometimes certain reenactors promote that idea and like to think that, I'm reenacting this and I'm learning these and I'm doing these skills and I'm bringing back something that has become extinct. Yeah. Con congratulate me. I'm amazing. I'm like, yeah. That bothers me. The idea of like that I am one of the shining lights that's continuing this or, or bringing it back from the dead, you know, and, and, and I, I see that especially in native reenacting, you know, yeah. I've seen that as well. And, and with, especially folks that aren't native that, yeah are doing primitive skills and think this, but, um, and I see that in, in many other places as well. And I, I that chaps my behind. Are, are you going through whiskey way too quick there? I, I just realized that this little noggin I'm drinking out of has a leak in it someplace, or it's just oh. so thin that it's soaking through. I didn't bring a whiskey cup. Soaking through your lips. But anyway, um, <laughs> I, 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 I just, yeah. So, I mean, my, my thought is that there's absolutely nothing that, that equates necessarily directly to the idea that, 
reenacting means something's dead or something is past and no longer. And I, I think that, you know, from a historical point of view, it's hard to say something is no longer. I mean, yeah. certain moved by certain time frames and periods and things and events, but so much of the human story just continues. Yeah. And, and, and I think making those connections across time, I mean, I think of when I was a teacher, I mean, you get squirrely high school kids and you're teaching who knows what for content and why do i need to know this well i mean i for me making it connect to them personally as a at a human level to their life and to their future i mean that's what history is that that's what catches them that what's going to make them learn and then make them connect with it and i and i think that those connections aren't artificial i think they're there i mean the human experience is a crazy and wild thing that has had some horrible parts to it, but also some wonderful parts to it. And often and at I the same time. Like, and, oh God, yeah, depending on who you are. Um, but, you know, but I mean, we, I, I think that that's the, 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 the story we're telling and, and, you know, we're not talking about something that's no longer We're we're teaching and talking and may, maybe at times keeping certain ideas out there and going, but, yeah, I don't know. I, I, the, the idea that since you're reenacting, it's dead, it, that, that, or that you're thinking it's dead when it isn't, right. that, that seems like a false concept. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of. I've been struggling a little bit. There's, there's been a big, not kerfuffle, but sort of kerfuffle in this critique of um, competition bagpiping, a competition Great Highland bagpiping specifically, and how it's like ruined the music. Um, and kind of ruin the musicality of it by everybody trying to play the same. And like, I've, I've definitely felt that way. And I've had that argument in my head many a time, like where I've agreed that and felt that way. And John Gibson, I think does a great job of kind of tracking the moment when those competitions start, where people are complaining about it and saying they're ruining the music, even in 1780, like this is, I'm not going to participate in this because it's not what the music is supposed to be. Um, but th there's a funny reality where I, I need to, I need to sit down and have a conversation with Keith Sanger about this too, I think. But there's a reality where, like, the lowland bagpipe, like the border bagpipe, it died out. Like, it did die out. Um, and the highland bagpipe didn't. And I think at the time, like, after, you know, in that 18th century period, I think probably for all of the 18th century, there were more border pipers than there were highland bagpipers. But it is those competitions and that military use um, of highland bagpipes that I think makes it go forward so there's sort of like this yes competition's bad um and maybe this obsession well, it, with wearing highland kilts yeah well yeah I, I think that's a lot of the things within what we consider highland culture um whether it be the highland attire the highland dress the tartan um playing bagpipes so many of these things we look at all the negatives you know of whether it be competition piping whether it be um the evolution of the kilt to what it was and the this quote-unquote falsity of um you know the sobieski brothers and uh you know highland or the clans the clan tartans uh whether it be you know i mean we can go through a, a variety of things that become romanticized and mythological throughout that period but yet if it wasn't for those things if it wasn't for the interest that it brought up i mean ashen is another one if it wasn't for the excitement and the you know, where would it be today? Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's it, right? Like the, the border piping, border, border piping has come back in a huge way. 
uh, and it's largely because of uh, some incredible work being done by lots of people, but like finding all the connections and realizing that the border piping repertoire was maybe alive and well with the Northumbrian piping, and so you've got that there. Um, oh, there was a point I was going to make. Oh, that was the other thing. Um, like, especially, I'm super critical of anybody that would dare um, complain about what is authentically indigenous or not, like, because this idea that culture has to be static, and if you're not living in a teepee, you're not actually a Native American, which is absolute nonsense. But I'm I'm totally falling victim to that with this, let's make fun of Clan Tartans thing. Like, that's how the culture changed, right? Like, society oh, culture changes. Yeah, I've many times, you know, equated and, and seen similarities or, or parallels with like, you know, Jacobite reenactors and native reenactors and, and that idea of like wanting to have like this date line where all of a sudden, once you cross that, it's no longer real. Yeah. Well, that's that the case. I mean, these are living, like you said, living, evolving cultures that yeah. still exist. And, and to try to create a line where anything beyond this is no longer real, it, it I think it's damaging. Yeah, at least in, in defense of Jacobite reenactors, at least they come from a culture that cared about dates. Uh, it really bothers me in native reenactors that are like, no, 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 yeah. 1800s a year that doesn't count. Like, what do you like? You you get that depending on where you are, that's not a time concept that mattered to anybody you're talking about. But anyway, that is definitely a tangent. Um, well, we I should we should wrap up. Um, based on length of this, otherwise I'll have to like edit a bunch and I don't like to edit a bunch. I want to just be able to cut and paste this into a podcast. Um, yeah. I am kind of curious though, um, if you've got any kind of, well, so, so I finally broke down. So you've been, you're on 35 kilts and, um, I finally like broke down and bought tartan because you keep on getting these historic runs of tartan being woven with that double line or the double uh, uh, herringbone thing like so how hard is it to actually get tartan that for you seems like oh that's bang on 18th century appropriate tartan is that a thing well, that yeah go ahead anything bang on 18th century is, is impossible almost right I mean, we, we could say that with any item. I mean, there are so many elements of, you know, with the modern mechanization of everything we do and, and materials and everything else to get a spot on exact reproduction is never going to be, I mean, it, it's just out of mind in, in some cases impossible, or at least within abilities and, 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 and amounts of money. However, uh, I think that we can get pretty quote close you know pretty accurate looking feeling um constructions of, of this um i don't know that it's easy but i don't know that it's hard either i mean we see a lot of people arguing back and forth over how hard it is in reenacting circles and i think that's the idea of i want something that's five dollars ten dollars a yard or a meter you know right, right. and that's that's you know even with anything now it's getting to be harder with that um but no, I mean, I now that I'm doing kilts and I've kind of been doing them in large amounts, I mean, I've, I've worked up and have um, trade accounts with a number of mills in Scotland. So that gives me the ability to work with them in a little bit better, closer manner and, and at cheaper prices. And, um, you know, there are a few mills that are willing to do special things, special runs in special ways. And then with the help of people who know even more than I do, for sure, way more than I do, you know, both working at those mills, certain mills in particular, and with like the help of folks like Peter McDonald and with a variety of other people out there that have done a lot of study on the topic, 
Um, we've been able to come up with, you know, some cartons that make sense, that look right, that are woven more correctly, that have the right feel, um, that have elements like proper kilt selvages and have, you know, at times, you know, the, the herringbone selvage and a variety of things that are correct to what we should be seeing for the time period. And, and, and part of it even is just having proper patterns, looking at extant pieces that exist, looking at um, images, looking at things and, and knowing what was out there. Yeah. Is it, I mean, I've kind of, I, I feel like Brave Braveheart definitely made oh all, all the tartan look sort of blah. Um, I mean, it's the time period where people weren't wearing kilts anyway, but still, uh, all the tartan that they were wearing was sort of blah. And I, and I feel like Outlander has sort of done the same thing where all the tartans are wearing are these really muted, uh, kind of drab looking. And, and we often talk about how there's this trend in, like, there's just weird little idiosyncrasies that people decide, like reenactors decide this is the thing to wear, and then we all wear this thing. And, um, and it winds up being kind of this muted drab look, um, like the, the whole, we got to wear back in the day, you know, rustic yeah. brown and earth tones and things like that make it common every day, which isn't necessarily the case. Yeah. And I think, yeah, we, we'd fall into that lump and, and Outlander also did it for artistic reasons to make a contrast between them and the British and the red coats and to make them look more earthy. I mean, so, it, but then rain actors and, and other people see this and in modern, everyone sees this and thinks, oh, that's the way it was. Right. And I mean, it, it does have a kind of a homey, I mean, it's similar to like watching, oh gosh, dang it. I don't even know if I want to say it, but like the Vikings on oh, sure. the, historical channel or the history you know I mean, it's, yeah. all the history channel but yeah. i mean mm. wearing leather and furs with all the i mean it's this dramatization of making them look more rustic more primitive more whatever and i think that's certainly the case with highland uh culture too is that there's this idea that they're at the end of the earth that they're these savage wild people i mean that was certainly something that was set at the time period to try to you know dehumanize them um but certainly it was part of a huge empire of trade and you name it. I mean, it's similar to the other reenacting that we see with 18th century with like the frontier in, in, in like Kentucky and that in, in the United States of this idea of like crude, rustic, you know, homespun, everything was done by themselves versus this idea that no, they were actually connected to a pretty huge world of, yeah. of trade. And like famously, had to buy from that trade right like we fought we literally fought a revolution over no longer buying that stuff because it was expected that we would buy that stuff and like i I think the amount of people like there are so many more people in england doing manufacturing work that like you just couldn't you couldn't charge enough for it to be profitable to make a lot of that stuff domestically so like that that action of homespun in the united states or like in what would be the united states is like a revolutionary act like it's like, sure, there are some poor people and some enslaved people doing it out of necessity, but largely the homespun movement in the colonies comes out of this, like, okay, we need to fight the British and stop buying imports, because it's... So rebellious, yeah. you know, I'm doing something that's going to be hard and sucky yeah. just to make a point of this. Yeah. I mean, a... you could say the same in some ways with, you know, whiskey culture in, in Scotland is, is a form of rebellion. <laughs> Indeed. Oh. Nice <laughs> action there. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, no, but... Yeah, so I, I think we get wrapped up in that, and I think a lot of people have gone for what's easy, what looks cool, what yeah. seems cool, um, connects with their 21st or 20th century um, expectations, but not necessarily what's 
you know, supported by the his. Yeah, I got totally, I got so sucked into it. Like, I had gone through, I don't want to, I don't want to crap on, because these people are doing really great work in some things. It's just funny, this obsession with Harris Tweed. Um, but like, I, I, I've just been in a couple conversations about this last week. Don't, but it's, it's like, I, I did all the work. I think, I feel like I did as much work as I was able or willing to at the time to like figure out what an 18th century kilt should look like by looking at, you know, original garments, looking at paintings and realize that, yeah, no, these are bright red, like really bold red, black colors is what you want to go for. So find a tartan that matches that. Um, but then as I was like kind of dabbling and thinking about getting a gray kilt again and just kind of hanging out in these Jacobite reenacting like social media groups, it's like, I am going to get some of that Harris Tweed. And I almost bought it like three or four times because I was like, yeah, no, it does look cool. That's what I want. And then it was funny going to Harris and Lewis and being like, oh, that that ain't tartan. Like that does not look anything like the pieces that I've seen. Um, and it's so coarse too. Like, yeah. It's funny how much those, like, that culture of reenacting, too, kind of buys into you. This is all a segue into, Isaac, can people buy kilts from you that are of, like, historically correct tartan? Is that a thing that's that you're taking orders well, I on? Yes, they can. <laughs> is this a chance that I can pitch myself? Yeah. yeah. I do have a website, and I don't know if you want to throw it in the diddly-doodly, yeah. whatever, uh, you know, common area. You could probably throw, like, Peter McDonald's and some of these other things in there. But um, like, yeah, I uh, just say your. I think most people will search a thing rather than click a thing. So what is your website so they can search it? Um, if you search Isaac Walters factotum, factotum is just a means a servant or it's oftentimes a term used for a jack of all trades because that's what I am. I'm not a master of anything. I'm not an artist of anything. I'm not great, but I do a lot of stuff. And one of those things, um, and if you look at my website is uh, is kilt making. And I'm trying to get away from doing modern kilts because I have had a number of orders for the six to eight yard knife pleated, you know, modern style kilt with buckles and straps. And I really want to focus on those historic ones because that's where I started. And um, with, you know, there are plenty of people making kilts that do a really good job of it, but there aren't many people doing the historical things. Um, you know, Matt Newsom used to make some cool four yard box pleat yeah. type kilts, but he's not making kilts anymore. Bob Martin is the man or was the man with that and, and has written and his research is amazing, but um, he is sadly passed and there's not really anyone doing that. So I'm hoping to fill that niche and if nothing else, just that, that's what I like is this idea of these old kilts as they first formed as a stitched in formed garment to be worn and uh yeah, I went cool. to, so that was the thing, I think I got distracted and didn't talk about it, but I, I went to, I'm not sure if it was actually Matt Newsom's museum, or just he was really associated with the Scottish. He was worked there at the uh, North Carolina yeah. the, uh, Scottish Darkness Museum. Yeah, it's, um, but I remember like going there and looking at kilts, and um, the, the sense I got was that the first bags were like, kind of haphazardly gathered together and stitched. And so my first kilt, that's how I made it, was essentially a knife pleat, but just because that's a quick gather and stitch, that's the easier way to do it to me. Um, and then you did quite a bit more research than I did on this, and you've kind of arrived at box pleats being more common, or what's your, yeah, what's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, that was me. That was, I mean, those before me that, you know, whether it be Matt, whether it be um, – Bob, certainly Bob Martin and, and, and Peter McDonald and, and a lot of these guys. I mean, and if you look at the images, it's really a box pleat. Um, and, and certainly the difference in the first part of the stitching from whether it's a knife or a box is, is pretty similar. But as you um, do the back 
side of it or the inside of the kilt that's what determines and and most of the old ones were box pleats yeah all i had Um, to do was press it (laughs) like i took my knife after after we talked about this years ago um and i saw what a box how good a box pleat could look all i had to do was press it differently and i kind of got that same look and the inside i mean i don't remember if you on yours stitched the insides together or not i didn't know you didn't yeah and and a lot of the historic ones were so how you stitch them together and press it now that's the difference because when you stitch them together like you watched me stitch at <laughs> that was absurd how fast you did that <laughs> like, um that was those outside stitches i mean that's the same whether you do the one style or the other style it's then what you do with the inside of it that then makes it what it is yeah. but um yeah yeah, cool. Okay, so Isaac Walters Factotum, and you can get an order in for a pretty stellar uh, historic style kilt. Because if you can only make historic kilts, that'll make you a happier kilt maker, is what it sounds like. Well, yeah, I mean, and I've had a pretty good sized queue for a long time. So, I mean, if I could weed out some of the things that I don't necessarily need to do and, and focus on the things that I, I really love to do, yeah. why not, right? Especially because it's not like my full-time gig, you know? Yeah. I've got a real job and, and a whole family and everything else, too. You're not planning to retire to kilt making full time? Not anytime soon. The, the retirement plan isn't as good in, in that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe in retirement, I would do that as a. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you wanted to? That you want to oh, touch I on? I don't know. We've, we've got so much we could and have and do and whatever, but yeah. Oh. This feels pretty good. This feels good to me. Uh, that's how Mark Merritt would end it. Is, you feel good? I feel good. Yeah. thank you isaac and thank you everyone for listening uh, make sure to check out the show notes you'll find a link to all of isaac's um well to his website and his instagram page there you can follow him and order a kilt if you want uh and also this coming friday march the 5th is another band camp friday so uh it's a good time to buy some music from your favorite bagpipers if they are on band camp uh, my album is there of course oyster eyes rant so if you haven't picked that up yet friday's a good time to do it uh, otherwise, if you already have, thank you. Uh, and there's, I'll have a whole list of all the artists that have been on the podcast. If you're looking for my suggestions, uh, that would be where to start. So you can find all that stuff in the show notes. So anyway, thanks everyone. See you next week.